Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stone Catchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. I am super excited about this week's episode because joining me today is Liz and Ryan from The Fourth Option. I'm sure you've seen their Instagram account. If you haven't, you definitely need to follow them on Instagram. They are amazing. So before we jump into the block of scriptures for the next two weeks of Come Follow Me, I'm going to give Liz and Ryan a chance to introduce themselves. Hi, um, I'm Ryan Giles. This is Liz Giles. And we were both raised in the church and uh, have been married for about uh, two and a half years and have decided to continue attending church. Um, we both have really strong testimonies of the gospel and so have been attending church since uh, since we were married. And we uh, run the Instagram account, The Fourth Option, that just talks about our experiences and the experience of, of experiences of other um, queer and active LDS people, uh, as well as we co-host a podcast called The Positive Gospel with another um, married queer couple. We've also done a podcast with Richard Osler, um, which I believe will be in the show notes. Yep, we'll link it down there. And it's a wonderful episode. I listened to it and it was really great to hear more of your backstory. I know you've shared a bunch of it on Instagram as well. So um, like I said, if you're listening to this and somehow do not know about Liz and Ryan from The Fourth Option, definitely go read some of their story, their love story. They've been sharing that in several different posts on Instagram and listen to that podcast. They are two amazing people and two amazing disciples. So I'm really excited that the three of us get to come together for um, this set of this block of scriptures. So anything else you want to say before we jump in, Liz or Ryan? No. Okay. So for the next two weeks, or I guess for this next week, we're talking about First Nephi chapters 16 through 22. There's a couple Isaiah chapters in there, and then Second Nephi chapters 1 and 2. So we'll spend the first half on that first block, 16 through 22, and then we'll jump into Second Nephi. And both myself and Liz and Ryan have talked about a couple of things we want to discuss, um, but we're just going to kind of go through them and see, um, see, see what comes up. It's going to be more of a conversational format than just me talking this time, thank goodness. So jumping into First Nephi 16, um, remember Sariah and Lehi and their family are traveling from Jerusalem. They're in the wilderness. Um, Lehi is just had his dream. Nephi has just had his vision with sort of some explanatory of Lehi's dream. And then we're kind of back out of the visions and the dreams and we're seeing what's going on with Sariah and Lehi and Ishmael and their families um, here in the wilderness. I know one thing we wanted to jump into, um, or one thing that happens pretty quick is that they find the Liahona. Um, Liz and Ryan, I think you had some thoughts around the Liahona that maybe you wanted to share. One thing I'll mention first is what I noticed in reading this time that really caught my attention about the Liahona is they're told on one night that they needed to go further into the wilderness. Let's see, it's 16. Nine through 10. Uh, thank you. Um, yes, at the end of nine, thank you. It says on the morrow, they should take their journey into the wilderness. And then it wasn't until the next morning that they woke up and found the Liahona outside of their tent. And for some reason, as I read it this time, I just had the thought, I wonder what that night was like, if they slept at all, if they were worried about going into the wilderness, if they wondered how they were going to do it, if they decided that they were just going to trust and they were able to get some sleep, or I just, it doesn't tell us in the text. And so I find myself wondering about that. And 
reflecting on times where I felt like God had asked me or I felt inspired to do something, but had no idea how I was going to do it. And then suddenly something opens up. So those are some thoughts I had just about those verses. Listen, Ryan, I don't know if there's anything you want to share. Yeah, that was uh, a section that I also, that stood out to me as I was studying. And I, I jotted down that they were given the commandment and the instruction, and then they chose to act in faith and in like uncertainty, and then they were provided with more direction. And so I just love that model of the Lord doesn't always, and the Spirit doesn't always give us all of the information we need or want at once. Um, you know, it really is often piece by piece. Um, and then as we act, we receive more. Yeah, absolutely. And and even when they had the liahona, you know, that direction was given piece by piece. It wasn't an immediate, like, full map of what they were going to do after that. It was just every... I mean, it acted like a compass, right? Every time they moved, the, the needle moved too, or, you know, I don't know exactly how it looked, but the, the directions changed as they followed them. And I think that's interesting. It literally says in verse uh, 29 that it said, um, there was written on them a new writing, which was plain to be read, that gave us understanding concerning the ways of the Lord. And it was written and changed from time to time, according to faith and diligence, which we gave unto it. And I think that's Kind of cool because it's kind of like how we are led individually and it's also kind of like how the church works as a living church you know it does change from time to time based on where we are and where we need to go from there um i think that scares some people because we like things to be concrete and mapped out in advance and that's okay uh but it does you know it, it we're given direction for us as a church and individually um and so it's going to change as we also change. It um it just brought to mind when the the Mormon pioneers were traveling to Utah to what is now Utah. Um, they didn't know where they were going. They just knew that they were going until they felt like they were supposed to stop. Um, and it wasn't until they got into what is now Utah Valley that they you know felt like okay this is the place. Um, so like same thing if they were acting in faith they were trusting that they would receive direction or that they would know within themselves where to go but they didn't actually know no until they got there so yeah i love that and it's interesting just hearing you talk about it i just had the thought i wonder i mean they had just spent so much time and effort to go back to jerusalem to obtain a, a written record of some sort the plates of brass only to now need this Leahona that it says there was a new writing. And I, I find that so interesting. I love the scriptures. I, um, they help me connect with God, but I, I think we need to be willing to also look for Leahonas, right? Look for the new writings, look for the new ways and the new directions, especially when we think about the fact that Lehi, Sariah, their family are in the middle of the wilderness, right? The place where their scriptures essentially told them they should be, and I talked about this in the last episode, was in Jerusalem. That's where they should be. That's where they could worship God. That's where they could go to the temple. And yet they were directed to leave everything that they knew about God behind and travel into the wilderness. And like you're talking about, God's leading them just a little bit at a time. And I think probably most people can relate to how frustrating <laughs> that can be. We want to know 
this is where we're going. This is how long it's going to take. This is what it's going to look like when we get there. But it just it just wasn't that way. And it usually isn't for us either. Yeah. With our Instagram community, with the fourth option, we talk with a lot of people who message us and will say, like, I feel like I'm supposed to marry a same-sex partner or I feel like I'm supposed to uh, stay in the church while I'm dating or, you know, any variation of that. Mm-hmm. But then they're like, but I don't have a, I don't have a partner or, but I don't know how I'm going to do that. And so it's really cool because we see within this community, um, a lot of this acting and faith, like working on whatever bit of revelation we do have and trusting that more will come. And also trusting that if we're heading in the wrong direction, that we will feel that and we'll have like the faith to course correct. To course correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting because they didn't, they didn't know they were going to receive the Liahona, but even once they did, they didn't necessarily really know how to use it. Um, it took them some time to realize that it worked based on their faith and diligence. Um, and then it also took them some time to even know what they could ask. Like they didn't ask about where to find food because they didn't need to, they were already finding food um, mm. until the bow broke and they were starving and they didn't know where to go. <laughs> and then at that point, they realized, oh, we, we can ask about that too, not just which direction to go to get to you know, the, the promised land, but also how do we make it in the meantime? How do we survive in the meantime? And then uh, they were led that way, but they didn't know they could do that at first. So just learning how to use the Liahona was a learning curve as well, which I think is relevant to us as we learn how to accept and act on personal revelation and what kind of questions we can ask and and how we receive answers from them. Yeah, I, wow, I love that. Um, I, not even realizing the questions that we can ask. Um, wow, yeah, I love that. That's another thing that I hadn't thought of. What a beautiful um, thing that you noticed in those verses. Yeah, that's powerful. I know we'd also talked a little bit about the building of the ship. Before we jump there, I don't know, is there anything else specific that we wanted to talk about in regards to the to the Liahona? Um, I do think it's interesting that before they necessarily figured out that it was according to their faith and diligence that it worked, that we do see a line of not just Laman and Lemuel murmuring, but also Lehi and Sariah and the whole crew really. Like when when Nephi's bros bow broke and the others lost their spring, like Lehi began to murmur against the Lord and they were all exceedingly sorrowful. And so I've I've just been thinking a lot about how Laman and Lemuel get a lot of attention for the murmuring that they do, but the reality is pretty much all of them have like these seasons and these moments of murmuring and these moments of uh, losing perspective with the guidance that the Lord is giving them. And yeah, so I just wanted to point out the the humanness of that, that it's something that even like the prophet of the Lord did and they all had moments of being chastised and being humbled and coming back to the uh, position of gratitude. Definitely. I often think about the, I think it's a, I think it's a Joseph Smith quote, but I haven't looked it up in a while. So take that with a grain of salt. But <laughs> okay. I, I think it was Joseph Smith who kind of compared faith to um, like a wheel. And, and that's sort of why community can sometimes be so important. And uh, is, is because sometimes he said, you know, we we're on the top of that wheel and we're at a spiritual high and, you know, we're very solid in our faith, but eventually that wheel for everyone 
does turn and we have moments of doubt or fear or murmuring and and that's okay while we're at the bottom of the wheel you know others can bolster us and and hold us up until that wheel turns and and mm -hmm. we're in a like strong all, place again it's all spoked together mm -hmm. and it's not a problem that you're at the bottom of the wheel you know everyone is at some point but it, it just it helps if you can have people that are around you to 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 hold you you know and and make sure that you're still okay in those spaces yeah i love that and i feel like sometimes in our church community it feels like maybe we expect everybody to be at the top of that wheel all the time right everybody's 100 percent. they've got their faith no doubts no questions no words from leaders are are hurting or causing sort of pain or anything like that and it's just all in 100 all the time and we just aren't right um that's just not the way that we work i love the way that you talked about that with the wheel and we need to make sure that the spaces our church spaces and the spaces we occupy are safe for people wherever they are in that wheel um yeah. with faith or anything else right Ooh, and if we were all at the top of that wheel the wheel doesn't go anywhere <laughs> yeah. so in a way like we we need the people who are at the bottom of the wheel who are asking the questions because that pushes the wheel forward yeah that is a powerful that's that's a powerful thought that's absolutely what moves us forward and asking different questions than have been asked before kind of like we talked about a little bit before with the liahona right asking the right questions and realizing when new questions come up that isn't a bad thing it means we're progressing forward we need to keep asking i had wrote down a quote from my favorite buchdorf quote one of my favorites that i probably share in almost every podcast episode, but it just relates to this so perfectly. He's talking about the importance of asking questions. And he says, we can block the growth and knowledge our Heavenly Father intends for us by not asking questions. How often has the Holy Spirit tried to tell us something we needed to know, but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew? I love that quote. And I feel like it goes so well with what you were sharing there. We need to not be afraid of more questions, even questions that feel like they would push past something we feel like we already know. Um, for those listening, I'm putting no in air quotes there because that's that's how we progress. Sometimes in order to know something, we have to unknow something that we already know, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I feel like in a way it's it's not even a wheel, it's more of a snowball. And as people are, you know, hitting that traction on the ground and really asking questions and seeking to understand that's what like propels it forward and then leads to greater faith and greater understanding for everyone. And then that leads to more wondering and reflecting and pondering and, you know, it just snowballs into greater faith and a greater community of Zion. I love that. I know we wanted to talk about um, some things behind uh, the shipbuilding. So I'll let you kind of lead off with that if you want. Yeah. Um, one thing I really loved about the shipbuilding uh, story is sort of the, there's so much, but the the first thing I want to bring up is kind of the process. You know, Nephi didn't just, um, they weren't just given a ship. They didn't come to the water and there was a ship ready for them. Uh, instead, they got to the water and then, uh, and then he received revelation that he was supposed to cross the water and then he said okay so i need to build a ship and so where can i go to find ore and god showed him where to find ore 
And then he said, okay, now I need to do something with this. So he, you know, he had to build the bellows and God showed him how to make fire. He hadn't made fire before. And in the wilderness, they hadn't really done that. And then showed him how to turn the ore into tools. And then from there, you know, then he asked his brothers for help and they said no. And then he asked, how do I build a boat? And God told him how to build a boat. And then, you know, and so it was this whole process. Um, and I think sometimes we, I don't know. I mean, to use us as an example, sometimes we show up to church and we say, well, you know, we really feel like the revelation we've received says that we should be married and that we should still come to church. And people say, whoa, God doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you know, marry a same-sex partner and go to church. And and it's kind of like Lehman and Lemuel saying, God doesn't just give you a boat. Well, he didn't just give us a boat. Uh, you know, he first he taught me that he loves me and that he does always, even in my weakness. And then he taught me how to hear the spirit. And then he taught me how to obey revelation. And then he taught me how to weather doubt and pain and judgment. And he did all of those things first. And then eventually I used those tools to, you know, receive the revelation that that he wanted me to be married. He wanted me to love the way I was created to love. And he still wanted me to love his gospel and show up at church. And so he didn't give me a boat, but he gave me tools and eventually I built the boat. And I think that's kind of how it worked for Nephi too. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it feels like we're in a kind of unique situation, like there are others out here doing similar things, but it very much does feel like we're in a wilderness sometimes. And I loved verse 13 in chapter 17, where it says, um, this is the Lord speaking. He says, I will be your light in the wilderness and I will prepare the way for you. Um, I just love that, that promise that even when we're in a wilderness, when we feel like we're alone or when we feel like there's a lot of a lot of uncertainty or a lot of things to weather um, that he is preparing the way for us. And also I hope that he is using us to prepare the way for other people as well, that we can kind of be some of the pioneers in this space to, to make this path easier for others who choose to pursue it or who feel prompted to. Yes. And to be clear, we're using our story as an example because that's what we have to draw off of. But I think that this applies to so many other things too, right? Like it's not just about being a queer member of the church, but it could be about having doubts and questions. It could be about um, being in, you know, like a like a mixed faith relationship where your partner isn't a member of the church. It could be about so many other challenges. Absolutely. Uh, I will never look at this story the same. Uh, I'm so grateful for you sharing that with me and with uh, all of us that are listening. What a beautiful likening of that story to your personal situation. I'm going to remember that every time I read that chapter now. Thank you. And you're right. It it's it can apply to whatever we feel like God has asked us to do. Um, that Especially the things that we feel like we don't know how to do or we haven't done before or doesn't quite fit into the culture of the church or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, we can trust that God will show us the way. Uh, and sometimes I know that that can be hard to trust because I know for me personally, there's times that I feel like I can feel God's presence in my life. I can feel what they want me to do and I move forward and things are great. And then there's other times where I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. I'm asking 
I'm, and I'm just, I'm not getting anything. Um, and those times can be frustrating too. And I want to honor people who feel like that's the space that they're in right now, because I've been there too. Um, I'm sure you've experienced that as well at times. And those times are really hard. And I do believe that God will lead us and trusts us to move forward the best that we know how. In fact, it talks about that in some later chapters in this in this same block of scripture that we have whatever we need to, to, to make good decisions. And God trusts us to do that in those times where we feel like maybe we're not receiving that direct inspiration. Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm really glad that you mentioned specifically 17 and 18. Maybe I'll read them really quick. It says, so this is Nephi writing, of course. And when my brethren saw that I was about to build a ship or insert whatever thing you feel like God is asking you to do, they began to murmur against me saying, our brother is a fool for he thinketh that he can build a ship. Yea, and he also thinketh that he can cross these great waters. And thus my brethren did complain against me and were desirous that they, that they might not labor for they did not believe that I could build a ship. Neither would they believe that I was instructed of the Lord. And I think we need to be willing to honor the personal revelation of other people, even if it seems like building a ship, right? If we wanted Laman and Lemuel to trust Nephi in doing this, then I think we, I know for sure myself, I think we as members of the church can do a better job at trusting others in the personal revelation that they have received, right? And believe them that they have been instructed of the Lord. And rather than telling them that they can't do it or shouldn't do it or that they should go back to Jerusalem or just do things the way they've always been done. We should believe that they've been instructed with the Lord from the Lord and walk with them in that journey. Something I was thinking about as you read this is, you know, we have the people that helped Nephi seemingly without complaining and just like trusting that he was in fact instructed. Like I assume Sam was there and, and Lehi and probably like their wives and other, you know, there are, there are people that aren't mentioned here that we know are, are laboring with him. And then there are ones that are doubting it. And with the metaphor of us being married and attending church, there have been so many Sams and Lehi's and uh, people like that, that when we show up in these church spaces, they, they trust that we are there because we want to be. And they trust that we are doing what the Lord needs us to do. And they have labored right alongside us, you know, they've advocated for us in ward councils, they've provided us with assignments that, so that we can serve, they've, uh, you know, been in our homes, they've, you know, there's just, there are so many people that have done that non-traditional labor with us, and we've been really grateful for that. What a blessing to have those people with you, and that's what we've covenanted to do, right, um, is to just walk with each other in our journeys. One other thing with the boat is that it was, well, this is in chapter 18, but in 18.2, uh, it says that Nephi didn't work the timbers after the manner which was learned by men, or, mm. or build the ship after the manner of men. He said, but I did build it after the manner which the Lord had shown unto me. And so we know that it was, you know, it was not a ship that was built after the conventional manner. And I know, you know, this probably goes without saying after what we've been talking about, but even in this the text of the scripture, mm -hmm. we know that the ship he was building was not only unconventional because he'd never built a ship before, but because it wasn't a ship that they were used to. Mm -hmm. And so even in the direct text of the scripture, he's saying that 
the Lord can instruct us in ways that may not be conventional, that we might not be used to, and that that's okay. And those things are still good and still of God. Just trusting other people um, and, and trusting their revelation and their walk with God is really all we're asked to do here. Yeah, one important part of that story, yeah, not after the manner of, of men. Yeah, so from this story, we can learn that other people will be instructed by God in ways that we never would have expected, that we never would have anticipated, that we never would have thought we'd even see um, in our lifetime. Yeah, what a beautiful piece of that story, just trusting the personal revelation of other people. I know in First Nephi 17.35, um, this was a verse we wanted to talk about. Uh, it says, Behold, the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. I love that. And then it says, He that is righteous is favored of God. And I know we wanted to touch on that. I think often the way we read those statements, it's almost like they're opposites, right? The Lord esteemeth all flesh is one. Everybody's the same. He love, They love us all equally. Um, it's infinite, unconditional love for everyone. And then the very next statement is, but they favor people who do certain things. And those just feel like opposites. And I think if we read that statement the wrong way, I think it goes against some things even that um, are taught in other places. You know, some of my favorite scriptures in Acts, it talks about how God is no respecter of persons. Um, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about in Matthew 5, how God sends rain on the just and the unjust that blessings come to everybody. He teaches that in the context that we should love our enemies and then shows that God is the example of that, that it's not punishments for the people who don't listen and then blessings all day long for the people who do. It's just we're all part of God's family and good things happen and bad things happen and that's just kind of part of it. So um, I think sometimes that verse can be a little tricky, but I know you had some thoughts to share about it as well. Yeah, when I was reading it, I I agree that it definitely it feels antithetical uh, to have those two right next to each other, and I this is my interpretation of it. But I I wonder if when we say that they're favored of God, we don't necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean that um, that they get more blessings or that they get more uh, like preferential treatment from God, but I wonder if what it means is that they're they're trusted of God to do his work. And so the righteous are those that God uh, directs to do, yeah, I mean, his work, right? Which we know his work and his glory is bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. It's to, it's to lift others, to bolster others, to bring them to Christ. So it means it's not necessarily antithetical. You know, he loves all his children. But those who are really seeking him, who are talking to him, who are looking to be good people and keep their covenants, uh, are those who are going to be given the opportunities to to raise others up, who are going to be um, given opportunities to share his love with others. Um, so in, in some ways, I think when they say that he that is righteous is favored of God, it's, you know, he that is righteous gets to share in the work of God. And I think that that is also, you know, a, a sign of favor in terms of like, it's really joyful to get to share the love of God with other people. It's it's joyful to get to feel how much love he has for his children. And so in, in that way, it is an extra blessing in that we get to love other people more deeply and we get to really serve those around us. But I don't think he means that he loves people more because they're righteous. I think it means that we get to love people more when we're following him. 
So it's also a phrase we see in the very first verse of the Book of Mormon, where Nephi talks about having seen many afflictions, but nevertheless being highly favored of the Lord. And I think that lines up with what you're saying about being highly put to work, essentially, by the Lord. And also with the afflictions, we see uh, Nephi saying that, uh, I think it was Jacob would be put through the fires, the furnace of afflictions, or maybe that was in the Isaiah chapters, but same thing there. You know, furnace of afflictions refines us, allows us to do that work more effectively because I think the more afflictions we go through, the more empathy we're able to have, the more stones we're able to catch, um, and therefore the more effective we can be in that work of bringing people um, into the light and the love of the Lord. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a really beautiful way to look at it that is not, I mean, I know for me, reading it, you know, as a youth or maybe even not in the too distant past, I'd read that and think, okay, so if I go to church every Sunday and make sure I pay 11% on my gross income of all my tithing and do this and this and this and, you know, all, all the things, then God will like me more. Um, and maybe I wouldn't say it quite that way, but that's almost kind of how I would read it. Um, and I know what you're sharing is so, so different from that. It's if we open ourselves up to the love that God has for us, then then we have an opportunity to spread and feel that love for those around us, right? Um, I like the way that you're describing that. You're helping me to have a better appreciation for this verse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't think you're alone at it all in that perspective, or not in that, but like in that mindset. Like it's a mindset that I think we are are raised to have within the church. Yeah. Uh, if I do this, then this will happen. If I do this, I will be blessed in this way. And I feel like it's kind of disingenuous to demand specific blessings or expect specific blessings or outcomes uh, because of things that we do. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's sort of that vending machine ideology that I think we fall into. Yeah. You know, if I follow this commandment, then I can expect this blessing. Um, and that's, we know that's not how God works. We're, we're taught that that's not how God works. Um, and so I think, but I, but I agree, I think we're kind of predisposed uh, to think of it that way or to think of favored as meaning preferred, maybe in some ways because of the, the the ways that we're taught that, you know, this is the one true church and that we're kind of God's chosen people. And so we we do tend to, I used to think that same way. I think most people would think that same way, you know, that favored would mean preferred and chosen. And anyway, basically you're, you're not alone in that thought. And, and I think that that's how we're kind of taught to think of it. Yeah, I no, I really appreciate that. And I know it can be really damaging on the flip side of it, where if something bad happens, we think, what you know we rack our brains to try and figure out what did i do to offend god that that would make this terrible thing happen to me we feel like it's something that we've done and it's just it's just not that way right things things just things just happen so and whenever i read the word the word righteous i can't help but think about um this is a bit of a tangent the parable of the sheep and the goats because that's one of the few places where i feel like jesus sort of describes righteousness if you remember from that parable it's the one where 
Um, it says the Son of Man comes down, gathers all nations, um, and then divides them, the sheep on the right, the goats on the left, and then he tells the righteous, it specifically says, he speaks to the righteous on his right, come into the kingdom I prepared for you, because when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a prisoner, you visited me. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Um, and they say, we don't remember doing that. And he tells them, in as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And that's what I think of every time I see the word righteous. Now, it's not personal piety where I want to make sure that I'm studying my scriptures every day and I'm going to church every Sunday and I'm doing all these little personal acts of obedience. Instead, now I think of righteousness as what Jesus described it as in that parable, which is taking care of people who need taking care of, right? Lifting up the hands that hang down, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoners um, and the sick. That's what I think of every time I hear the word righteousness or righteous or righteousness now, because that's one of the few times I can see where Jesus sort of described it in his mortal ministry. And that helps me, that helps that word have less baggage to me. It doesn't mean perfection. It means trying to take care of people who need help. I know later in this chapter, in 1741 and 42, it just talks about how he sent fiery flying serpents among them. And after they were bitten, but he prepared a way that they might be healed. And the labor that they had to perform was to look. And because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. I think often we make the gospel or righteousness too complicated, right? We turn it into all these things, all these programs. You got to do this. You got to do that. You, you, I mean, even to an unhealthy point where you're not, you're not doing any good for yourself or for anybody else because you're just, um, I don't know, it's just too much. We make it too complicated. I think it really is simple. You know, Jesus said we would be known for our love. Um, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is our redeemer. I mean, I think, I think we make it too complicated yeah. sometimes. I wonder sometimes if we want to complicate it almost because we feel guilty about how simple it is. You know, like we receive so much from the atonement, right? If we, if we think about an eternity of of happiness and of fulfillment and of peace if we think about forgiveness for our sins and you know uh all of these blessings that we get from the gospel and from christ i think sometimes we think it just feels too simple and too easy for it to all come down to loving god and loving our neighbor and so then i think we kind of seek to add to it because we feel like we owe more in order to receive what we receive. That's supernatural, I get it. But at the same time, it's like, those things actually aren't as easy. It's only two things, so we think they're so easy, but they're because <laughs> love is a verb. <laughs> like, loving God and loving our neighbor is doing things, but it doesn't have to be checking boxes. It just has to be really feeling that love and then acting on it. And so I think we can start really small and that's okay. We can start where we're at and then as, as our capacity to love and act on that love grows, then maybe we'll feel called to do the things that may inadvertently also check off the boxes, you know? But if all we can do right now is really work on loving God and loving ourselves and not not judging our neighbor, then that's where we need to start, so. I love that 
with those two commandments, those are things that every single person can do. Like there are no limits or restrictions on our ability to do that, regardless of our, you know, restrictions or standing in the church or within like society. Um, we can all, our, we can all like, our hearts can grow in deeper love. And I just keep thinking about the fact that the Savior suffered an individual atonement for each of us, each and every one of us, because he hopes that each and every one of us will return to live with him and with our heavenly parents. Like it's easy enough, not, not, I don't mean easy enough, but like it's simple enough that it is possible for every single child of God to make it back. And maybe even though a harder process, like, like it requires maybe more sacrifice and more humility and more of giving up our will to the Lord than maybe we think, but it is also a, a simpler process at the same time. Yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. And it's, I, I feel like I, I can hear in my head a couple of um, lessons or devotionals or something that I've heard where people sort of a little bit disparagingly say, some people want to just make the, say, my gospel is just being nice to people. Like that's some cop out or like that's so easy or something like that. But what you're getting at is that's actually really hard sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, I feel like if righteousness was just staying home and not making any mistakes, that is a heck of a lot easier than going outside of my home and encountering people that are so much differently than me that, that also are so human and make mistakes and we're bumping into each other and annoying each other and getting mad at each other and trying trying to learn to love unconditionally the way God does us in that environment that just like you're saying is actually really hard. Sometimes we I don't know, I hear it involves front work. Like it requires us to get on our knees and get our hands dirty and all of that, not just to get on our knees in prayer, which is important too, but yeah, it also yep. requires us to get on our knees and work. Yep, I love that. I love that. Uh, and it, actually, as you were talking, I was reminded of something that Marvin J. Ashton um, said in a conference talk uh, a while ago. He tells this experience, it's pretty short. He says, during an informal fireside address held with a group of adult Latter-day Saints, the leader directing the discussion invited participation by asking the question, how can you tell if someone is converted to Jesus Christ? It says for 45 minutes, those in attendance made numerous suggestions in response to this question. And the leader carefully wrote down each answer on a large blackboard. All of the comments were thoughtful and appropriate, but after a time, this great teacher erased everything he had written. Then acknowledging that all of the comments had been worthwhile and appreciated, he taught a vital principle quote, the best and most clear indicator that we are progressing spiritually and coming unto Christ is the way we treat other people. And I love that. He's not saying all those other things aren't important. It's what true conversion to the gospel and progression of the gospel is, is the way we treat other people, all other people, right? Not just people like us. Let's see, was there anything else there you wanted to talk about? Should we? I know we talked about maybe 1750 and 51. How is it that he cannot instruct me that I should build a ship? Yeah, I just, I feel like all things are possible through Christ that he wants us to accomplish, you know, same with 
I feel like it's the same idea as First Nephi 3.7. I feel like when the Lord has a work for us to do, he supports us in that, sometimes directly, sometimes through other people, but there's always help along the way for those that um, need it. Absolutely. Maybe I'll read these two verses really quick, 17, 50, and 51. And I, Nephi, said unto them, if God had commanded me to do all things, I could do them. If he should command me that I should say unto this water, be thou earth, it should be earth. And if I should say it, it would be done. And now if the Lord has such great power and has wrought so many miracles among the children of men, how is it that he cannot instruct me that I should build a ship? And when I read that, I immediately kind of, you know, build a ship turned into a blank. What, whatever the personal revelation is that we feel like I've received or you have received or others have received, if God has performed all of these miracles and wrought all these great works, how is it that they cannot instruct me or you that we should insert whatever your personal revelation is, right? They can instruct us to do anything and we it can be things that we never expected, but they can instruct us to do it and they will help us make it happen, right? We've, we keep hitting on that theme, but I think I think it's so important. Is there anything you'd want to talk about before we jump to First Nephi 22? I have two kind of interconnected thoughts um, from 18 and 19. The first is in verse 4 of chapter 18. It's talking about how they, it says, they did humble themselves again before the Lord. I love that in this section of First Nephi throughout all these chapters, we see them, we see them going through this like process of humility and repentance and then messing up again and repenting of the same thing and murmuring and then being humbled and becoming humble and trusting in the Lord. Um, so I love that that humility and that process of loving the Lord more fully and trusting in him is a bumpy process and it's a long road um, where we're often taking three steps forward, one step back, one step forward, three steps back. Um, <laughs> but it's more about the the direction we're heading than the speed at which we're heading there. And then in 19.6, Nephi talks about, like acknowledges the fact that there is weakness in him according to the flesh. And I, I, I love the acknowledgement that not only is he as a future prophet and Lehi as a current prophet weak, but all of us, like because we are human, we are inherently weak and imperfect. And, you know, that's why we're here is to learn and to grow and to receive strength from the Lord and to rely on his merits and his mercy. So I love the reminder that these are the stories of people who are are very human and who are going through the same process of humility that we are in mm -hmm. our lives. Yeah. And that if we allow ourselves to acknowledge that they had weaknesses, then we can learn from those weaknesses the same way we're meant to learn from our weaknesses. And so I think that's a, a strength that we have in the scriptures is that we see people who are imperfect and we are allowed to learn from their weaknesses the same way that we learn from their strengths. Absolutely. And I, I think sometimes, especially in our church, we're so afraid to let prophets in scripture or current day church leaders be human and make mistakes. We, I mean, I know there's kind of been... <laughs> rhetoric in the past about how church leaders will never lead us astray or, you know, those kinds of things. And and I think sometimes that just unfortunately makes us 
expect them to be perfect, which just isn't fair to them. And it's not fair to us. It takes away our individual journeys. And of course, that doesn't mean that, well, I guess I'm not, I, I can just throw away everything that Nephi ever said, right? Because we're talking about some beautiful lessons in here that we can still learn from what's written, but it also means that we're going to see some humanness and some mistakes and some things maybe that we, sh some things definitely that are written that we shouldn't pull into our understanding of God because we know a little bit better now. I really loved in the Book of Mormon for the least of these, they talk about this concept a little bit. What she says is the fact that scripture holds the whole spectrum of human relationships with God makes it more useful and holy for us, not less. And I, I just love that idea. I think it's easy for us to say, oh, well, if they've got weakness, then why am I even reading this book anyway? But I like that concept of that actually makes it more holy. We get to witness somebody else's walk with God in all of its imperfections and say, okay, well, you know, I, I'm going to try and be like them in this way, but I can see where maybe they didn't quite get it right over here. And that's okay, right? That can help inform our walk with God. So I love that line that, that actually makes scripture more holy, that we get to see their imperfect walk with God. And we see that with general authorities too of, you know, just because we read things that they've said that are, you know, wrong or painful or approached in a way that's not very healthy doesn't mean that there aren't other things that we can learn from them. I try to acknowledge the nuance in in people um, and especially in our leaders and mm -hmm. learn from their strengths and their testimonies and their weaknesses and their flaws. Absolutely. And I think they can be, it helps us understand that they can be both things. Like I think you both have been saying, you know, they can be prophets and they can be wrong sometimes, you know, and knowing that that's happened in our history and, and they've still been prophets and still been wrong about things and, and seeing that that can happen to, you know, the, the best and most celebrated of, of past leaders lets us give even our, our leaders some grace and it also gives us an opportunity to, again, ask more questions and just get directed by God. Because um, there was a talk that I really loved by Elder Christofferson, and I wish I could remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I can't. I want to say it was in like 2012 or 2013, but um, where he talks about how sometimes church leaders speak as men and they're not speaking prophetically, and that it's our responsibility as members to ask and always ask God if what we've heard is true. Even if it comes from an apostle, even if it comes from a prophet, it's still our responsibility to ask if it's true and if it's what he wants from us or, or how he wants us to understand his word. And so I think sometimes we offload a little bit of that responsibility by, by taking prophets exactly at, at face value and taking the words of prophets at, at face value. And we offload some of that responsibility to understand what God needs from us. And uh, we're not really supposed to do that. <laughs> we're supposed to still have that personal relationship and that personal direction from God. Yep, I love that. I remember one time other or I guess President Oaks now saying that as a general authority, he teaches general principles and that it's our responsibility to determine if those general principles apply to us. Um, and sometimes we're not, as you, 
as you're saying, sometimes we want to offload that responsibility to them and just, <laughs> you're telling me to do this? Okay, I'll do that. And I mean, I, and I'm not coming at anybody who takes that approach, but for some where something that somebody's teaching doesn't quite resonate, I think we need to allow them the space to determine whether that general principle applies to them. And I think sometimes um, we forget that the people that are sitting in the pews with us in our church or in other churches or no church, probably for the most part are doing their best to follow God if they believe in God or just be a good person. Somehow we, if their path looks different than ours, we assign some sort of ill intent or deception or lying or something like that. When really I think people are trying to follow God where God is leading them. And the <laughs> best thing we can do is walk with them as they do that, not tell them that they're wrong or anything, but see um, and you know we can learn and grow by watching them and maybe they can learn learn and grow by watching us in our the different paths that we take in following god so yeah i think those are great thoughts fully agreed and then i have one other thought before we get to 22 um yeah. just 21 it's really quick but there is verse 26 so chapter 21 verse 26 and in it, it says at the end, um, and all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy savior and thy redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. The word I really love in there is the word thy. He doesn't say all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am the savior and the redeemer. He says, I'm thy savior and thy redeemer. And I think that that's, you know, that's just such a cool thought that, that we are responsible for our own journey. And then, but, you know, and in, in the end, we will know and everyone will know that he's not just the savior, he's our savior. And as long as we know him and we seek him and we follow him, he's our He's our savior. I just think that's beautiful. It's very personal. He's God is always a personal God. I love that. I did not even notice that. You're right though. Thy savior, thy redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. And I'm glad you mentioned that verse because whenever I read Isaiah now, I always open up, it's a translation of the Hebrew Bible by Robert Alter that I think is for me a lot easier to read. And when we were studying Old Testament and I read it, I was like, Isaiah finally makes sense. <laughs> but in this verse, one thing I noticed is he actually translated the word savior, which I also love, to rescuer. Uh, and I, I really like that rescuer with a capital R. Um, so all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy rescuer and thy redeemer. I really, I really like that. That's beautiful. Chapter 22 is a lot about the scattering and the gathering of Israel. And whenever I think about that concept now, I think about some things that Charlie Bird said in his books. I'm going to share this quote really quick about the gathering of Israel. Um, he said, I no longer view the gathering of Israel as bringing others into the small circle of Zion. Instead, I view it as expanding the borders of Zion to ensure it encompasses each one of God's children. We establish Zion as we seek to know one another's hearts. We expand Zion's borders when we erase the boundaries of who we choose to love. And that was in his book, Expanding the Borders of Zion, on page 21. So I love that approach to the gathering of Israel. It's not finding people and then trying to make them believe what we believe so that they can come do things exactly the way that we do. It's um, it's erasing the boundaries of who we choose to love. 
I really love that. I think that that makes so much sense too, because like the definition of Zion, right, is one heart and one mind, like a people who are of one heart and one mind. And we can't change people's hearts. Only God can do that. Um, but the only heart that we can change is our own. And so if we want to be of one heart and one mind with others, the only place that we can work on that is in our own heart. If we're working to change our hearts and to expand our hearts to others, then that's how we're growing Zion, right? I also think if the circle of Zion is small and uh, largely homogenous, it's hard to really truly be of one heart and one mind with God because God is the creator of all and he is he's so much more expansive than our, our limited lived experience. So the more that Zion's borders are expanded and the more that people of diverse backgrounds and perspectives and ages and ethnicities and all of those things are brought in, the more truly we can be of one heart and of one mind. Um, and as we listen and learn from others and walk beside them and as we allow others to walk beside us as well. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, yeah, we can't, we can't be one with God without also being one with all of God's children, right? So as you're saying, if Zion is, oh, I love that. If Zion is small, then, you know, we're not, we're not quite there yet. We're, yeah. We're only one with God once we are also one with all of their children because there's, they're, they're all God's children and there's a piece of divinity, there's a piece of God in each of them. So yeah, wow, oh, I love that. Yeah, like we were all formed from the same holiness and intelligence and the same, like we all come from the same divine makeup. So until we can truly learn and love from and like understand like all then we're not truly there at zion yet and obviously that's a process that i think will carry into the eternities before it's complete like i, I don't think we have that capacity to fully form zion as mortals but that's why we're here is to to learn and to practice and to pivot towards that and expand the borders as much as we can and then we can only complete that process with the savior through the savior i love that anything else you want to say about first nephi before we leave it behind forever and go to second Nephi? <laughs> <laughs> i know second nephi chapter one verse seven it's one of those verses where i was really grateful to have um, the book of mormon for the least of these let me read the verse and then maybe i can share a little bit out of that book but the verse says wherefore this land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring and if it so be that they shall serve him according to the commandments which he hath given, it shall be a land of liberty unto them. Wherefore, they shall never be brought down into captivity. If so, it shall be because of iniquity. For if iniquity shall abound, cursed shall be the land for their sakes. But unto the righteous, it shall be blessed forever. So this kind of goes back to some of the ideas that we were talking about earlier. But I really appreciated what... Fatima Slay and Margaret Olson Hemming said, they said, the theology that Lehi espouses in these verses is troubling. The language he uses about, quote, possessing the land um, and his repeated claim that obedience to the commandments will guarantee safety and prosperity are problematic. 
The biggest issue is his belief that obedience guarantees security. And then it quotes him saying, if it so be that they shall keep his commandments, they shall be blessed upon the face of this land, and there shall be none to molest them, nor to take away the land of their inheritance, and they shall dwell safely forever. They go on and say, given Lehi's life experiences, the idea that he is claiming that obedience to the commandments guarantees safety is almost jaw-dropping. It was after all his own obedience to God that caused him to lose his home and wealth in Jerusalem and spend years on the point of starvation in the wilderness. He has witnessed and repeatedly invokes in the following chapters the suffering of his family members that has followed their commitment to their faith. His own family's experiences belies the claims about God that he is making in these verses. And she later says, we can't silently pass by Lehi's words here because not naming it corrupts our own theology. We have to push back against Lehi here and ask ourselves why he is making these claims about God. And I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, where Nephi admitted his weakness, right? And um, maybe this is one area where Lehi was experiencing that a little bit as well. Or maybe we've just misrepresented building up what we call a prosperity gospel, where if you do good, only good things happen. If you do bad, all bad things happen. We know that that's not the case. And so if we're trying to make these verses mean that, and we just know that, I mean, what, what Lehi knows that's not the case. We know that's not the case. And so either that's not what he meant, or this was what one of those, one of those moments. I, I feel like the universe works through natural consequences a lot more than we maybe sometimes think. Like, I think we often think that God is bringing down specific punishments. And maybe that's true. Maybe. But I feel like often it's just like the natural course of consequences of our actions and also the actions of others, you know, especially when bad things do happen at the expense of like or at because of other people's choices. You know, sometimes we think, oh, what did I do wrong to deserve this? And I I just don't think that, I don't think it was deserved per se. It just was the natural way of things. And Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's good to remember the context in which this was written, right? Like, Lehi was coming from a culture that was very focused on uh, basically like inheritance law and was very focused on dividing up land and the differences between nations and there were pretty frequently and constantly like wars and, and division of the area that they were in uh, like redividing of that area between different countries and different um, different nations and so that's something he was very uh, laser focused into because that's the culture he was in um that's not as much the culture we're in now and so the 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 same concerns and the same metaphors don't really work the same way for us they don't really resonate the same way and i think it would be a bit of a mistake to try and take that uh that mindset and apply it to like heaven it's not a pie you know there's not only so much heaven to go around and if we're not the uppermost crust of the righteous, then we won't make it, you know, we won't get any of the pie. Heaven is the presence of God and he, there is enough. He is endless. Yeah, there is enough of God to go around uh, for everyone. You know, if we are all quote unquote righteous, right? If we all love God and and want to be with him, then we will be. 
Um, and so I think taking some of this, we, we can definitely pull lessons from it, but I, I think trying to apply this same cultural mindset to heaven or even just to today's world, it, it's not a direct one, but one-to-one -one comparison. I definitely agree with what you're both saying, where I, I also no longer view, I, I remember telling my seminary kids when I taught last year, I don't think God is a school teacher standing over you with a yardstick waiting for you to make a mistake so they can just whack you on the knuckles. That's just, that's, that's not the way that I understand God anymore. I think, unfortunately, I did kind of understand God that way where always watching, you know, angels are silent notes taking of every action. That would kind of freak me out a little bit like, okay, well, if you do bad things, the punishment's coming. But I just, ah, I, as you were saying, I think things just happen, right? If something bad or sad happens to you, I don't think it's a sign that God is trying to punish you or me. I think it just means that we live in a world where bad and sad things happen sometimes. And, and trying to decide what we did to offend God to make them want to punish us isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to do anything for us. Um, instead, I think they always want a relationship with us. I don't think they would ever do something that would not help us to want to and move us closer to having a relationship with them. So as as they said in Book More for the Least of these, taking this idea too far can really corrupt our theology where we think God's this punishing God rather than God is love, which is what we know from other scriptures. And I think it comes back to what we were talking about with the Leohona in a lot of ways, you know? Like we have this record and it's important because we need to know, it, it helps to know where we've been and, you know, the kinds of things that people before us were thinking and, and the ways that they understood God. But um, having just the, this record of, of where we've been isn't enough. We also have to use the, the living revelation that we can receive to push us forward. And so I, I don't think there's nothing of value in this but I think it has to be paired with our, you know, our, our Leahona writings. It has to be paired with our individual resources in order to really use it and to find the the, the truths inside it. And also our individual like conscience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. I yep, I think you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. There are some beautiful truths in Second Nephi chapter two. Before we jump there, because I can already and I can already see in Sunday school classes, verse 10 coming up, because I know I've heard it come up before where people are trying to talk about how the world is just becoming wicked and bad influences and all that kind of stuff. It, what the verse says is, but behold, when the time cometh that they, the people who possess this land, which according to common understanding is the Americas, at least that's how I've always heard this applied in the Sunday school classes I've been in. So people who possess this land, the time cometh that they shall dwindle in unbelief after they have received so great blessings from the hand of the Lord, having a knowledge of the creation of the earth and all men knowing the great and marvelous works of the Lord from the creation of the world, having power given them to do all things by faith, having all the commandments from the beginning and having been brought by his infinite goodness into this precious land of promise, behold, I say, if the day shall come that they will reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, their Redeemer and their God, behold, the judgments of him that is just shall rest upon them. I know, maybe I'm the only one. I know I have heard this verse used before trying to, I mean, almost in like a Christian nationalist kind of a way, right? Where it's like, 
we got to make sure everybody in the country is believing in Jesus the same way that we do or else, you know, we're all going to burn. Terrible things are coming. If we don't, if we don't do all these things and make people do and act the way we think that they should, then the destruction is coming. Um, I know I've sat in Sunday school classes where this verse has been used that way before. And so um, I did just want to pause on it really quick and talk about it. I don't know if you have any initial thoughts about it or if you were in like a Sunday school discussion, what you might say if somebody tried to use this verse that way. I've totally just put you on the spot. No, no, it's important to talk about. Um, I definitely have heard this you know, multiple times in, in multiple classes and in the same way. I'm not entirely sure <laughs> what I would say about it. I also don't entirely know, but I do think that verse pairs really interestingly with First Nephi 20 verse 2, um, where it says, they call themselves the holy city, but they do not stay themselves upon the God of Israel. And so I think within religious communities, I think we really need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we doing everything that we can to make sure that we are turning our hearts to the Lord and ensuring that we ourselves are not dwindling in unbelief and then trusting that if we're caring, if we're taking care of ourselves and relying on the Lord, that there might be some really sucky natural consequences around us that will maybe affect us, but just trusting that the Lord has a plan yeah, and I, I just kind of drawn to a, a similar idea where it's not saying if everybody here doesn't believe the exact same way, then these things will happen. It's saying you who I've already spoken to, you who, you know, you've received revelation from me. Sometimes we read that and we say, well, we have to fix everyone else. Well, he's not saying everyone else. He's saying, I've already spoken to you. You know my voice. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, like you're Like you're saying, it's it's, we should apply that verse to us, right? Not use it to say, hey, all you people, <laughs> get it together or else, right? It's it's a call for us to be more Christ-like and treat others the way that Jesus did. It shouldn't be a call for us to try to force other people to believe the same way that we do. It should be a call to us to treat others the way that Jesus taught us that we should, right? It should be a call for us to gather Israel the way that we were just talking about in a way that is expanding love, not creating an in-group and an out-group, right? It's it's expanding the borders of Zion to include everybody. Yeah, and we, if we've felt that love of God, we have a responsibility to to do that, like you're saying. Um, that's, that's who he's speaking to. Yeah, I like that. Um, that it's for us, for ourselves, like all scriptures should be, right? We should never use a scripture to tell somebody else what they should do use scripture to help us connect with God in a way that makes sense to us. One one thing that I do like about that verse um, <clears throat> is that it is a call to bring in instead of to push out. And I think that there are a lot of scriptures where we're saying um, or where we interpret it to be like, let's push people out of our circle so that they don't infiltrate or so that they don't degrade us as a body. And I think those ones are even more problematic than these ones. But I do like that it is an invitation to bring in instead of to push out of the body of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it yeah. still doesn't necessarily like acknowledge, like honor people's agency and stuff like that. But yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's a call. Uh, yeah. It's a call for us to treat others the way that Jesus <laughs> did, not 
force others to believe Jesus the way that we do, I guess. Yeah. Is there anything else in chapter one you want to talk about before you go to chapter two? I know there's some really wonderful thing, wonderful things in Second Nephi chapter two. I honestly can't remember which chapter this was in, but you had some good thoughts about the wicked take the truth to be hard, and I don't want to bypass those. I do think no. that's another one that's always brought up in Sunday school, and I would love for you to share the thoughts you shared with us in email. Really yeah. Quickly. Yeah. Speaking about <laughs> tough verses, right? And I know being on social media, I feel like this is one that is thrown around a lot, right? Mm -hmm. um, somebody comments on a post saying that they disagree or have different experience than maybe what a member of our church is sharing. And then somebody will respond and say, the wicked take the truth to be hard, right? Oh yeah, we one a lot. Yeah, yeah, me too. And it's just, I mean, first of all, it's just not helpful. But I, when I, when I read that verse this time, I just thought it feels like that verse becomes a justification for us to be able to say things that hurt other people without taking responsibility for the impact that our words have, rather than thinking about, wow, the way I'm teaching this principle or the way I'm approaching this principle could actually be really harmful to these certain people or not match the lived experience of other people. And rather than expanding the way we're teaching, sometimes we can justify to ourselves, ah, well, the wicked take the truth to be hard. So I'm just going to tell it how it is. And if if anybody's offended, that's their problem. They're choosing to be offended because they're wicked. And I think, well, I mean, we shouldn't do that, right? Not I think we just we just shouldn't do that. I don't think any of us who are trying to share gospel principles or things that have been meaningful to us from a religious or a spiritual point of view, ever do that with any, well, hopefully, I know you don't, we don't do that with an intent to hurt somebody else or to condemn somebody else or to hope somebody feels bad about what they're doing. And so when it's brought to our attention that that has happened, and which has actually happened to me a couple of times, um, where I was sharing something I thought was really great and uplifting, and you know, somebody would message me or comment and say, actually, this. I've had this experience and so reading this is actually really painful and I could message them back, the wicked taketh the truth to be hard, but that that's probably not the case. What's actually going on is they have an experience that I don't have and what I should do is listen and expand. We only have our perspective and rather than thinking we have the one right perspective, we should listen to the perspectives of others and see the truth from their point of view, how they understand God and how they walk with God. Just like we've talked about with so many other verses, rather than you don't do it the same way as me, it's not the right way. So yeah, I think that is unfortunately a verse that gets weaponized all too often. I think sometimes we use that verse and, and we want to say that Christ was sometimes harsh, you know, with his mm -hmm. rebukes to people. And, and so then we, we try and justify that way too. But when we look at the way that, and, and Christ should be our model for all things, right? When we look at the way that Christ communicated with people, the only times that he really spoke with harshness about the things that he was teaching was when he was when he was responding to people who were already coming at him with contention the pharisees and the sadducees who were coming at him to trip him up or to condemn him but otherwise every time that he met with someone who was not living the way that he was teaching or who was uh, considered a sinner in the society that he was in 
he met them where they were at and he met them with love. He didn't immediately start preaching to them. He didn't tell them, well, you're not living this way. And, you know, I'm sure that's upsetting to you, but while the wicked take the truth to be hard, he met them and he said, I still love you. Like, I, I love you no matter what you're doing. And, and then, you know, if there was a principle to be taught, then, then he taught it gently. Um, but he didn't, he didn't do it as a gotcha or anything, you know, he, and he often taught it as like questions where they were giving them, like bring coming to their own answers and conclusions as well. Mm-hmm. And he led them to the next step. He didn't give them the whole, you know, <laughs> you know how we say teach the ideal. I mean, I, I understand that, you know, like you said, we teach general principles a lot of the time. And so we talk a lot about like, we have to teach the ideal, but he didn't necessarily jump straight to, you know, here's exactly how your life should be. He just said, he, he told them the next step, the, the next good thing that they should do to get closer to him. And, um, and so I think when we say, oh, well, well, Christ spoke with boldness, Christ spoke with harshness. He, he didn't really, not when he was meeting with people who really wanted to come to him, who had intent to do good. And so I think we need to be careful with the, the way that we use harshness. Yeah. I love that you brought up examples of Jesus because yeah when I think about the times when maybe he's is viewed as being harsh it was also it seems to be in in my memory always in defense of a marginalized individual as well it was never just to prove a point or make sure somebody understood it was in defense of somebody who was often being marginalized or attacked by the religious institution of the day or even one of his own disciples right I mean Peter cuts the man's ear off and Jesus says, stop it, no more of this, right? That's a really severe rebuke to his chief apostle, Peter, or he goes into the temple and clears it out. But that was so that people who were marginalized and being crowded out of the temple could actually get into the court of the Gentiles and worship there. Yeah, that's such an excellent point. Yeah, too often we use the boldness that Jesus showed in defense of others to attack others who don't believe the same way that we do. And that's just, that's, that's not it. Yeah. And also, I think sometimes, you know, there can be things that are hard that that can still be true. And I, I'm, you know, I'm saying this with a lot of like <laughs> caveats, but I think sometimes, you know, there can be things that that we struggle with that are nonetheless, you know, things that that have value at their core. And I think acknowledging that the truth can be hard and can hurt isn't an excuse to throw it at other people. I think sometimes we can just recognize that things are hard and people get hurt. And that's a great opportunity to step in and to offer healing and to offer help and to be a a balm instead of an additional hurt, right? Mm -hmm. Do we have to cut people deeper when they're already hurting over something or are we called to comfort those that mourn? I think sometimes we can just step in and mourn with those that mourn. And I, I think that's the better path. I love that. Yep, you're exactly right. I feel like Ryan's comment there about the bomb transitions really nicely into Second Nephi too, with the yeah. verse about the atone like the Savior's atonement. So I'm gonna read a couple of highlighted lines there, starting in six. Yeah, please do. Uh, so it says, Redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. And I circled the word full because it's an endless grace and an endless truth. 
Behold, he authored himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law unto all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. And then skipping down a little bit, it says, There is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. He shall make intercession for all the children of men. I love the way you emphasized you shall make intercession for all of the children of men. It's all it's all about grace, the grace that God gives to us and the grace that hopefully we give to ourselves. And also, I mean, I don't want to even want to say give because grace isn't necessarily even ours to give, but I guess allow others to have. Yeah, I love those verses. Mm -hmm. What What did you want to point out in them? Same thing, pretty much like the words full and all and no other way, essentially. And then I also just love that often we, we present it as we're saved through, you know, God's grace and like the Savior's grace after we do things by our own merit. Yeah, but I if. love that this verse says it's that there's no way for anyone to dwell in the presence of God, except through Christ's merits and his mercy and his grace um, because of the sacrifice and the, the atonement that he um, has uh, performed for us. Yeah. And I love that word intercession um, mm -hmm. because intercession, right, is, is stepping in for someone, stepping in between, right? It's it's basically the the definition of being a stone catcher. He's the one who's stepping in and saying, "No, I I I know this person, and I know that they have been trying, you know, and and putting an effort and and really just doing what they can." And, and he's the one who really makes all of that enough when it's not enough, and it's never enough. We we can never be enough, and that's not an excuse to not try, you know. But it, it is just wonderful to know that at the end he's he's the one who's stepping up beside us and he's saying no this is this is my you know this is my sibling this person has been doing so much and uh, I don't know I think that's beautiful he does that for all the children of men mm -hmm. yeah yeah the goal as you're saying the goal isn't to somehow be enough the goal is to realize that I am enough and you are enough and our other neighbors are enough that all of us, are enough as we are because we're children of God, doing our best to follow them, doing our best to love others. And we're here to learn how to do that, not to try to earn a spot back with God, right? Um, that it's only in and through, as you said, the merits of Jesus Christ, their grace. Um, they, they want us back, right? <laughs> God wants us back to be with them. And that's their work and their glory. And sometimes i mean we we think we can stop that because of some little thing that we've done we, we're not that powerful or at least I, I mean i know i'm not um i'm not that powerful to stop god's work and god's glory i i think eventually one day we will all be one through the merits and the grace of jesus christ um and god and and we'll all We'll all be there, and I'm grateful for that. That it's not it's not about trying to be enough. It's about recognizing um, that we're all already enough. One of my favorite Richard Rohr quotes is: "Faith at its essential core 
is accepting that you are already accepted. I love that from Richard Rohr. So yeah, those are some beautiful verses. In Second Nephi 2, it also has that verse about needing opposition in all things. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I, I think we talk about this one a lot in the church um, and it's it's pretty well covered and well understood, but at the same time, I think, I think we think of the opposition still as like, <clears throat> as, as bad sometimes, you know, that like there has to be opposition, but it's so that we can know the good stuff. But sometimes I think opposition is just so that we can understand the depth of, of both sides. Um, and so, you know, if there are people who believe in ways very different than we do, that's not bad, but it's a great opportunity for us to say, wow, I don't, I don't think the same way you do. Tell me how you think. And then, you know, we're not necessarily going to change our mind, but at least then we have a chance to see the depth of experience in this world and, um, the depth of ways that God can communicate with people, uh, and again, the goal isn't always to, to think the same way, but maybe just to understand that there are different ways to think. Yeah, I love that. I know from personal experience, my, <laughs> I feel like my relationship with God or understanding about God and also our connectedness with all of our siblings here grew exponentially when I started reading about and learning about Buddhism, which, you know, previous version of myself would have said, nope, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has everything that I need. I don't need to go looking at other places or reading other books or whatever. But as just like you're talking about, that really helped me see the depth of um, that connection. And I mean, it it really it strengthened my relationship with God in in a way that I wasn't getting um, from what I was already doing. And I'm not saying that everybody has to do that in order to have that experience. But I know for me. That was my experience. So I love that you approached opposition that way. It's definitely been true to my experience. Yeah. Uh, is it Chieko Okazaki who, yeah, Chieko Okazaki was- um, One of my favorites. Oh, she's amazing. The more I learn about her, the more incredible she becomes. But um, she was a previous president of the Relief Society. Um, first, counsel, first counselor, I think, yeah. Thank you. Um, and she was Buddhist before she converted to um, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And one thing I really love that she's talked about is that she says she brought her Buddhism with her when she joined the church. She didn't abandon those beliefs, but she integrated them. Mm -hmm. And her understanding of a, a different way of, of believing in God and believing in a higher power I believe really is is part of what made her such a powerful advocate and a powerful disciple of Christ. And so um, just be, because you mentioned, you know, um, looking outside of, of things that come strictly from our religion can strengthen our uh, testimony of God. I, I really believe that that's true. I think there's so many different ways of seeing the world and understanding those ways can only open new avenues for us. Well, and tying that to us personally, like, I feel like I understand the Savior better and love deeper because of my queerness. Like when I bring that into my faith, like it expands it so much. Mm -hmm. And I, I love hearing that. And I think that that's so true. Um, when, when we bring all of ourselves 
that that only increases our relationship with God, right? Sometimes we feel like we need to hold a part of ourselves back or we need to strip these other things away about us. But I mean, we're God's children. God wants relationship with us, not some idealized version of ourselves that we think we should be. God wants a relationship with each of us as we are right now in this moment. Yeah, I love that. I think that could be a really great place to stop unless there's anything else that you want to share from any of these chapters. No, I think that's a, I think that's a great place to kind of conclude. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Latter-day Stone Catchers. Please, as I said, find Fourth Option on Instagram. They are an excellent follow on Instagram. Let us know what you think about this episode. Please share your thoughts and insights from these chapters. And thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.